The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing that gives that, give that person any food or clothing, what good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Glorious. Well, as Tanner so accurately alluded to uh, in the worship set, we have been hanging out in James. And James is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's one of the most applicable, applicable books as far as what it means to be a Christian, how we live out our faith, what that looks like, how we wrestle with it, how we love, what we get challenged by. And Tanner had mentioned, we've been kind of saying, James is that really intense physical trainer, right? I'm not sure if you guys have ever had a personal physical trainer or you've been a part of a group class. Maybe you've done something like Camp Gladiator and they have this like massive passion and this massive smile on their face as they are literally beating your body to a pulp, right? And they're just up there and they're like, let's do this, let's do this. And you're like, I hate you, I hate you so much. But it's helping you, right? Because the more that you spend time with them, the more that you build up your physical body, the stronger you become. Uh, just recently, I started working out again. This is something that I haven't been doing for about a year and a half, um, but I've been swimming. And swimming to me is my lifeblood. I hate running, I hate biking, pretty much any kind of cardio that does not um, work in water, I have no interest in. But the fact that I've been swimming, the fact that I've been doing laps, I literally get home and I feel better. I actually have endorphins running through me, and I'm like, wow, this is what it feels like to be healthy. And it's hard, but it's good. And that's really what James is about. It's some hard truth, some uncomfortable truth. It kind of pushes you, it stretches you, but at the end of the day, once you've let God do his thing, you actually become closer to God. You feel better. You act better. And so we've been looking at James through that, and we're going through the entire book of James this month. We're going to go chapter by chapter, reading verse by verse, and saying, okay, God, what are you trying to share with us? What are you trying to teach us? And this chapter of James specifically is probably the most controversial chapter in one of the most controversial books in the New Testament. We talked about last week how the early reformers actually tried to get rid of the book of James because there was dissonance between are we saved by grace and grace alone or are we saved by works, right? The Catholic Church about 500 years ago had really pushed heavy into, no, you had to work your way into God's favor. And they would use James chapter 2 as their proof. And we're going to read that in a minute. But what we're going to see is that while we are not saved by works, we're not saved by what we do, our faith does lead us to do something. And if our faith isn't leading us to do something, there's a problem in our faith. Right? So we're going to see that. And actually, the entire chap uh, chapter 2 goes through that. It starts off. And James writes, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man, well, you, you stand over there or you sit at the floor by my feet, 
Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And as I read through this verse, and as I was thinking through my own life and using James as that mirror into how I treat others, I think all of us do this to some extent, right? We all have people that we enjoy spending time with, and we all have people who it takes a lot more energy to spend time with. If you like comic books, I will probably want to spend time with you, right? I will have a conversation with you. But if you are into fixing cars, that's really not up my wheelhouse. Unless, of course, I need my car fixed, in which case then we are going to be best friends, right? But all of us do that. We prioritize relationships based on whether or not they're going to be able to give us something. They're either going to be able to give us some social value where we're going to enjoy each other's company or they're going to be able to give us some monetary value or some skill value. And so we prioritize those relationships. And that's what was happening in the early church. And what James says essentially is, guys, when you treat people differently based on your personal preferences or based on what they can give to you, right? Oh, this is someone with money. This is someone with influence. This is someone with power. That's someone who I want to invest my time into. James says, guys, that is not the divine economy. That's not what God is after. And again, in my own life, this is something I wrestle. This is something I wrestle with as a pastor, right? Someone comes in. They drive in in a Cadillac or a Lexus. And I can think, oh, my gosh, this could be someone who could really help the church, right? Oh, someone came in, and it really looks like they're having a rough time. They're not going to be able to invest in the church as much. God says, guys, that, that's not what I'm up to. That's not what we are called as Christians to live. And he's going to walk through the rest of this chapter, and he kind of keeps coming back to this, of how we treat others, how we love others, what our posture is towards others, actually shows us where our faith is at, how our connection with God is doing. He goes on and he says, listen, my brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are not they the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blasphemizing the noble name of him to whom you belong? What James is saying is that when we think our power or our money or our influence are going to protect us. They become our God, right? They become the thing which we trust in, we depend upon. And he says, but in our poverty, in our realization that there is something wrong that we need God to lean into, to grab into our lives. Well, he goes, in those moments... We actually inherit the kingdom of God. We actually rely on God. And so again, this divine economy where it's actually not the rich, it's actually not the powerful, it's not the influential. God says, no, when you realize that you need me, because that's when you're connected to me. That's when you take part in the kingdom of God. And again, that's what James is driving after again and again and again in this chapter. He says, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and you are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. There's a lot going on in this verse. And just to really touch briefly on this, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself, and he ties it into how we treat one another. And he ties it into this idea that we're all on the same playing field, right? So he's talking about loving one another. He's talking about loving no matter who they are, no matter what they can give you, no matter what they're going to take from you. He says, we're called to love our neighbors ourselves. And then he says, why? Well, it has to do with this idea that we're all broken. And in the same way that there is no hierarchy in us being better than one another, right? So it's not about how much money you have. It's not about what kind of car you drive or what neighborhood you live in. He also says it's actually there's no hierarchy as far as what we've done wrong. He says whoever keeps the whole law and yet makes one mistake, he goes, it's the same as breaking all of it. Whether your mistake was you looked at the woman the wrong way or you weren't completely honest on your taxes or you saw that your parent was calling and you're like, you know what, I know they need to talk to me, but now's just not a good time. What we see in this is this deep truth about sin. It's infected all of us. And none of us get to look at other people and say, well, that, well, that sin's really worse, right? Because typically when we say that sin's really worse, what we're really saying is, in my social context, in middle-class America, that sin that you just did there is more socially awkward or frowned upon than my sin. And James says, no, 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 no. That is not the divine economy. That is not how God looks at sin. It's worse than you know, he says. It's infected all of us. And because it's infected all of us, we're all on the same playing field. So when he says to love our neighbor as ourselves, none of us are better and none of us are worse. worse. We're all on that same level. But then he goes into the why and the how, and we get this beautiful gospel moment. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love this line, the law that gives freedom. Because we don't typically think of the law giving us freedom, right? So we're driving down the road and we see a speedometer or we see a, a speed sign and it says 55 miles per hour. I'm not free to go above 55 miles per hour. And so we don't think of laws or rules as freedom, all right? And yet, what he's saying here is we're judged by that law, and apparently it's going to give us that freedom. So, so what's he talking about? What does that look like in our lives? Well, Jesus says, I'm going to sum up the law in two statements for you. Jesus told his disciples, love God with everything you have. And love your neighbor as yourself. He goes, that's the law. And what you see in that law there's all kinds of freedom. There's all kinds of joy. There's all kinds of peace. And in love, we find that we're free to do whatever we want. If you are truly loving God with everything you have, if you are truly trying to love your neighbor as yourself, there is complete freedom. In those actions, in that posture, you can do whatever you want. You can bake cookies for your neighbor. 
You can go out and buy someone a coffee or a beer. You can do anything in that law. And he goes on and he says, hey, this idea that it's not about judgment. This law isn't about, it's not about following the rules. This law isn't even about what you've done wrong. No, he says, mercy is going to triumph over judgment. And that frames what this law is. There is a backwards way of thinking when we think about God's law. I've heard this sermon preached in a Lutheran church, in a non-denominational church, in a Catholic church, and in a Baptist church. And all four of them are wrong. All right? And what it does is it talks about the law of God being a fence. And God wants to protect us. God doesn't want us as his children to be run over by this cosmic semi-truck. And so what God does is he puts us in a playground and he builds a fence around us. And that fence is the law of God. And that fence is meant to stop us from being hit by that semi-truck. And I have heard this sermon four times, four different denominations, but the problem with it is it's backwards. God provides the fence not to keep us inside about everything else that's out there. God builds the fence to keep us out of this very small little area called sin. Because at the end of the day, when we talk about sin, when we talk about the brokenness of the world, we have this idea that it's bigger than God. That the sin is more fun than what the fun that God can provide is. But when you look at scripture, it's actually the other way around. Sin is so small, it's so broken, it's so life-sucking. And everything else is the grandeur and the freedom and the expanse of God. And so the laws of God literally aren't meant to constrict us, he says. The laws of God are meant to free us. And they keep us out of this little trap, this little life-sucking black hole that is sin. James goes on and he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs... What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. This is where we start to get into the controversial, what is James getting at? Right. Is our faith something that we take part in? Is our faith a gift? Is our faith salvific, right? Is it how we reach into salvation? And he starts actually really breaking down what this looks like. But he starts it off, right? And it's a pretty simple idea or simple concept. Someone comes with a need. Someone comes with a concern. And he goes, what good is it? If in that moment, you're like, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. See you later. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. Praying for someone is moving, right? Prayer does move. But at the same time, if our entire posture is to outsource, right, there's something broken there. There's something wrong with our faith. And that's really what James is getting after. 
that if your faith doesn't spur you to move, well, your faith isn't alive. Right? If you imagine faith being like a heartbeat, if the heart isn't moving the body, there's something wrong with the body. Right? If the heart isn't making you get up and do something, if that life force isn't producing life in action, there's something wrong with the life force. And that's what James is hitting. He's saying, guys, if your faith isn't causing you to do something, well, what's the point? Right? Because like Tanner actually said, God cares both of what we are becoming, his children, but also what we are doing. And that's where he goes in this next section of scripture. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. He says, oh, you believe there's one God? Well, good. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. He starts deconstructing what faith is and what faith is not. And what he says in this part is believing something about God, knowing something, like Jesus died on the cross for your sins, is not what God is after. Sit on that for a moment. Believing a set of propositions. I believe in the Trinity, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the Apostles' Creed. I believe that Jesus died for me, right? Propositional thinking is not what God is after. In fact, what's really interesting, if you go throughout the Gospels, again and again and again, people come up to him and says, what must I do to be saved? At no point does he say, what you need to do is believe that I have died on the cross for your sins. That is never Jesus' answer. Now, me saying that, let me be really clear on this. We are called to believe that he is our Savior. But deeper than that, actually above that, is we are called to believe that he is Lord. That he's in charge. What Jesus says in response to what must I do to be saved, he gives two separate answers to. Come follow me. Or believe in the one God has sent as Lord. It's the same thing. He doesn't say, I need you to believe these four statements and you get into heaven. That's not what God is after. That's not what faith is about. He wants something deeper. He wants something more beautiful. He wants a relationship with you. And in that relationship, we understand the depths of how far our God will go to have a relationship with us. And all of a sudden, Jesus dying on the cross for our sins isn't a statement. It's a truth of relationship. It's a proof of relationship. And in understanding that, we draw closer to God. We draw closer to who he wants us to be, and then we move. We act out of that truth. We act out of that gospel, that good news that we have a God who dies for us, who fights for us, who raised back to life for us, and it changes how we interact with one another. It changes how we interact with our neighbor. It changes how we interact with ourselves. It changes how we interact with our God. He continues on and he says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed, and it was accredited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. This is an interesting scripture because both James and Paul use the exact same verses. They're talking about faith and they apparently come up with two very different conclusions of what God is doing here. If you were to read this, and we're going to read what Paul writes to the uh, church in Rome in just a second... But they come up with what looks like, on the surface, two different answers for how we are saved, what faith looks like. But what we see is that they're actually answering two very different problems, two very different questions. Paul writes this. What then shall we say, that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter, if, in fact, Abraham was justified by works... He had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul writes to the Roman church, hey, it was his faith, it was believing in God that Abraham was created righteous. Not by works, right? James says, just the opposite? James says, no, it was faith and his works acting together. Well, what we see, and the reason why the dissidence is here is, Paul and James have two different audiences. They're both Christians, but they're Christians wrestling with different things. You see, what Paul is writing to is the question of not whether or not you have to do these religious works of the law, these rituals, to make God happy. Because if you go through the Old Testament, there were all kinds of rituals. There were all kinds of works of the law. Things like circumcision. Things like sacrifices that you would have to do weekly, monthly, and yearly. And the early church was trying to figure out, do we still need to do all these rituals to make God happy? And Paul writes to them, no, you you don't. The ritual's already been done. The sacrifice has already been made. It's Christ alone. It's grace alone. It's God or bust. You don't have to add any more work to your salvation. The good news is that Christ did all of it for you. You are in right relationship with God. He loves you. You are his children. Full stop. That's what the church in Rome was wrestling with. The rest of the church, though, and in fact, the church, I would say, in Acts Church Leander, what we wrestle with at times is, well, how do I live out my faith? How does my faith impact how I treat my neighbor? How does my my faith treat how I handle things like favoritism? How I handle things like those who are less well off than I am. And to that, James says, hey, guys, yeah, you're saved by grace alone. But if your faith isn't causing you to be alive in Christ, there's something wrong with the faith. There's dissonance there. God's calling you not to believe in these four things about him, but he's calling you into relationship and to follow him, to be his student, to let him actually be in control. And that's the context to which James writes. 
Ephesians 2 combines the two statements together. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Starts off by saying, guys, you are brought into a relationship by Christ and Christ alone. You don't add anything to it. You don't have to do anything. There's no sacrifice you have to do. There's no specific prayer you have to pray. It's Christ and him alone. But you are saved with a purpose. For you are God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Guys, you're saved with a purpose. You're saved to do good, to be agents of goodwill, of God's grace, of God's love, of God's agency here in the world. And I love how he ends James 2. Because you would think if he's doing this whole push for good works, right, and trying to be good, he would use like this awesome example right? This like man of God or woman of God who just really crushed it. But who does he use? In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so is faith without deeds. What I love about how James ends this chapter is he says, guys, this isn't about doing it perfectly. This is about living a perfect life, getting it all figured out. That is not the starting place. That is not the bar we have to reach up to to have faith. He uses Rahab the prostitute, who obviously had some things that weren't going right in her life, who obviously had some issues and some brokenness and some law-breaking going on, and yet God used her in the divine plan. She's actually an ancestor of Jesus. I love how Paul, James ends by saying, guys, it's not about being perfect. No, we have a perfect God. He ends it by saying, guys, it's just about taking the next right step in following Jesus. Moment by moment, day by day. Not because we have to earn God's favor. Nope, we already have that. But because we have his favor, it spurs us to live differently, to act differently to treat people differently. There are five chapters in James. There are five Sundays in June. So the challenge that we've got for this month is to read through James five times. The whole book probably will take you 20, 25 minutes tops to go through. But every week we're going to have a different question to reflect on. Every week we're going to kind of have a different way that we're going to engage the book of James. This week, the question that we've got is, in what areas of our life is God spurring us to love because of our faith? Maybe it's neighbors that he's put on our, on our heart. Maybe it's family members that we haven't talked to for years, decades. Maybe it's how we respond to people at work that are beneath us or respond to people at work that are above us. Whatever it is, this week as we go through James, be praying, God, how has what you've done for me in Christ 
positioned me to love as your ambassador. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, it would be easier if faith just meant believing in certain statements, but it wouldn't be beautiful. It would be stale. It would be lifeless. Lord, you are a God of life. Lord, you are the God who promised that you had come to bring life and life to the full. Lord, life, even in our brokenness, even while we were dead, Romans tells us you died for us, you rescue us, and you breathe life back into our spiritual selves. Lord, we pray that that life would spur us to movement. Lord, that would spur us to change. Lord, that would spur us to see our neighbor differently, to treat our neighbor differently, and to encounter you in deeper and more full ways. Lord, we say that's all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.